0: I pray that the eyes of our heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which he has called you, the riches of his glorious inheritance in his holy people and the incomparably great power for us who believe. The power is the same as the mighty strength he exerted when he raised Christ from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly realms. For above all rule and authority, power and dominion in every name that is invoked not only in the present age but also in the ones to come and God placed all things under his feet and appointed him to be head over everything for the church which is his body the fullness of him who fills everything in every way thanks be to God would you join me as we pray for rebecca Living God, we thank you that we're able to gather here, not
1: just to sit through uh, a time of getting advice,
0: but being reminded of the good news that transforms this world. And so we ask that you would fill Rebecca with your hope and your power as she opens up your word. We pray all this in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you.
1: Good morning, everyone. I wonder if you've ever heard the expression, the story you're telling yourself. It works something like this. When something happens to you in life, say someone does something that offends you, you make up a story to kind of explain to yourself what's going on. Maybe you tell yourself that it was all planned, they did that on purpose, so you start to avoid them. But until you know the facts, the story you make up is just that, a story. Maybe the person, it was an accident all along, they didn't mean to offend you, and now they wonder what's happening. What this expression has taught me is that it's sometimes hard to see a situation for what it really is. How I see it may not be the same as how someone else sees it, and it's important to get the story straight. I bring this up this morning because much of what Paul prays for the Ephesians is also shaped by the story, by a story, but not by one he's made up, it's by one that's been revealed to him by God. We'll see in his prayer that when it comes to our lives, the story that we're telling ourselves matters. What you believe will happen will shape how you live now. So turning to the book of Ephesians, I think if a movie was being made about the making, the writing of this book, it would start something like this. So you'd start with this, the camera would be all close up on Paul, writing this letter and you'd see this joy on his face. I feel like you can, when you read Ephesians 1, you can almost hear the excitement in Paul's voice and hear the affection he has for the believers in Ephesus. Now, the recipients of this letter would have been mainly Gentile or non-Jewish believers. And maybe part of this excitement comes from him reflecting again on the remarkable truth that even the Gentiles are included as part of the people of God, as God's holy people a title which had been reserved only for the people of Israel up until now. Next, the camera would zoom out, and we'd see where Paul actually was while he was writing this letter. He's in a Roman jail. I imagine a small, dimly lit room, tiny window with um, bars on the window as well, maybe chained to a soldier. And the contrast between the joy in his letter and the darkness of his captivity is pretty sharp. There's nothing at all that seems very victorious in Paul's situation. This isn't a picture of someone who's made it in life. We wouldn't envy him at all. And yet, Paul is able to compose a letter that is filled with such deep thankfulness and awe at all that God has done. Despite his circumstances, Paul lives in expectation. And this isn't a false hope. It's not a story he's made up. This one's actually true. It's been revealed to him by God. And it's this same hope that we hold to today. We're part of the same story. When I started writing this sermon, I was in my own kind of isolation, not in prison, but in bed with COVID. And I found that my reaction to my circumstances was quite different from Paul's. I didn't write any encouraging letters to congregations. Instead, I drowned my sorrows in ice cream, and I watched a lot of Korean dramas. (laughs) Somehow, when I'm in hard situations, I find it really hard to be joyful or thankful like Paul is. I stress about my lack of productivity, and my mind goes to all the worst-case scenarios, probably shaped by the stories I'm telling myself. I wonder if Paul ever struggled with negative thoughts like these. How can he write what he does from the place where he is? The contrast here shows us something true about God's kingdom, something that Paul understood. You may have heard the kingdom of God described as being both now and not yet. Yes, God reigns, yes, Jesus is king, but we don't see the full realization of this yet. The bill has passed, but it hasn't fully become law. There's been a regime change, but not everyone's heard the news. We're in an in-between place. So the fact that Paul was in prison didn't mean that something had gone horribly wrong. Actually, a lot of things had gone pretty right. The gospel was spreading, even the Gentiles were included, and God had poured out his spirit on all people. And there were really good things yet to come. Paul writes, and he prays here, to make sure that the Ephesians don't forget this either, to make sure they tell themselves the right story, because it will shape how they live. He prays that they would really know God and know what they're hoping for, and that this future hope would shape their present reality. I think Paul's prayer is a reminder to us today to pray. And this is our main takeaway, to pray that by God's spirit, we would know the story, that we would really know the hope that we're called to. God is bringing his kingdom into our world, For now, it's partly hidden, but one day, it will be visible to all. And this hope, this story will shape how you live, and it will shape how you pray. So let's walk through this text together and see how Paul talks about the story and the hope, starting in verses 17 and 18. I keep asking that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation that you may know him better. So the first thing Paul prays here is that they would have God's spirit. Paul calls him a spirit of wisdom and revelation. He's the one who will make things clear to the Ephesians. Paul prays that by the spirit, the Ephesians would come to a deeper knowing of God himself. It can be possible to know a lot about God with our minds without really knowing him with our hearts. We can know a lot of facts about Jesus without allowing him access to our lives a heart level knowing goes deeper. For us to really know God, we need his spirit because this type of knowing is rooted in relationship. I wonder for you, as you think about your own life, um, what has helped you to come to a deeper knowing of God? For myself, I think I've gotten to know God in a deeper way by practicing trusting him, but I remember that he's with me in all circumstances. And somehow I found that it's been in the harder seasons of life that I've seen him even more. Maybe his spirit is more evident or maybe just that's when I'm looking for him. I've gotten to know him not only by reading scripture, but also in taking him at his word. And I've gotten to know him through prayer, just talking with him about whatever's on my mind and I've gotten to know him in this deeper way by experiencing his spirit speak to me and work in my life over the years. So it's something that's taken time that I've grown into as well. Paul prays that the Ephesians would receive this spirit of wisdom and revelation so that they would come to a deeper knowing of God himself, a heart level knowing, and how they see God will shape how they see the rest of the world. So pray that by God's spirit, you would know the story. And this leads us to the next verses, verses 18 and 19. I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which he has called you, the riches of his glorious inheritance in his holy people, and his incomparably great power for us who believe. Paul asks that through the Spirit that they would know the hope. They need a heart-level knowing here, a shift in worldview to grasp what God's going to do. So what hope is he actually talking about? The word hope implies something that we haven't experienced yet. If we already had it, we wouldn't be hoping for it. But for Paul, it doesn't mean something that only just might happen. This isn't wishful thinking like I hope it's gonna be sunny tomorrow when actually there's a really good chance of rain. It's more like hoping for the spring to come after a really long winter. You know it will come because it always does, but sometimes it takes longer than expected. The hope Paul is talking about in Ephesians 1 is also shaped by a story, the story of God's purposes in our world. God is bringing his kingdom to earth. Now, a bit of the background to this, the background to what has already happened in the lives of these Ephesians, we see in chapter 1, verses 4 to 14, and I'll just summarize this for you. So Paul writes that the Ephesians were chosen by God, verse 4, they were adopted as God's children, verse 5, they have redemption through Jesus' blood. Redemption means the sense of being rescued or a ransom being paid for you so that you're free. Their sins have been forgiven and they've been given the Holy Spirit. And all this happened when they heard the message about Jesus and they believed it. And as proof of their salvation, they were given the Holy Spirit. And Paul is already thankful. We see this in verse 15 for the evidence of God's work he's seen in their lives. He's heard about their faith in Jesus and seen their love for God's people. Faith and love are evidence of the work of the Spirit. But Paul prays also that by the Spirit, it would be made clear to them not only what has happened, but also what is yet to come, because this future hope will shape how they live mid-story. What is this hope? And Paul touches on this in verses 10 and 14. In verse 10, Paul writes, he says that when the times reach their fulfillment, God will bring unity to all things in heaven And on earth under Christ. And in verse 14, he notes that the Holy Spirit, who they believed when they they received when they believed, is a deposit guaranteeing their inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession. So there's a future redemption happening here. And to really get at what he's saying, we need to understand a little bit more how the world was seen at that time. So in the Jewish perspective, there were two spheres. You could picture them as two big circles. Heaven was the realm with God and his angels, and earth was the sphere of humans. And these two realms coexisted at the same time. And generally, heaven and earth didn't overlap, except in one place. In the Old Testament, it was believed that the temple was the place where heaven and earth could meet. So this was where the people of Israel would go to meet with God, um, to pray and offer their sacrifices. But with the coming of Jesus, something significant happened. Heaven and earth were brought together not in a place, but in a person. Jesus himself being fully God and fully human became the place where heaven and earth overlap. And we see this temple imagery used for Jesus in the Gospels as well. In John chapter 22, he refers to his body as a temple. And we see evidence for this in the miracles he performed. Heaven, God's realm, was breaking in. Now when Jesus ascended into heaven, all authority was given to him. And God sent the Holy Spirit to his people at Pentecost. And because of this, today the church, the people of God, we are also described as a temple. The church is the place where God dwells by his spirit. God will, um, Paul will talk about this in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 21 and 22. In him, in Jesus, the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. And in him, you too are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. The global church is now the place where heaven and earth meet, to give us a taste of what it will be like. And this isn't because the church is perfect or because Christians get everything right. We know that actually far too often we get things wrong. And it's in those places we are called to repent for misrepresenting God in our world. The church is the place that heaven and earth meet simply because God has chosen to make his presence known in our world in this way, by sending his spirit in our midst. But the Ephesians are still waiting for something more, a future hope, something that is still yet to come. In verse 10, when Paul talks about a time when God will bring unity to all things in heaven and on earth under Christ, by this he means that a day is coming when heaven God's sphere and earth, our sphere, will completely overlap when Jesus will come again to reign. And on that day, God's purposes will fully be done on earth as they are in heaven. We won't need to pray that anymore. Heaven will come to earth. On that day, in the same way that Jesus was raised from the dead, God's people will also be raised. Death itself will be defeated. And you can't say it's impossible because it's been done before. God did this in Jesus. Jesus is described in 1 Corinthians as the first fruits of those who have come back to life. Evidence of heaven starting to break into our world, a taste of what is yet to come. It may still be winter, but spring is on the way. And Paul wants the Ephesian Christians to really get this so that they can live today in light of this future hope. Even when their present lives as conquered people in the Roman Empire seem so distant from this picture he's painting, even when Paul is confined to a prison cell or I'm at home sick, the hope hasn't changed. Paul prays that God's spirit would enlighten the eyes of their hearts to be able to see this truth. So pray that by God's spirit, you would know the story. Paul also describes this as a hope that they're called to What does it mean to be called to a hope? It's not really an expression that we use very much. It means that they are called to be the people that they will become when all of this happens, when heaven comes to earth, because that's who they're meant to be, when they'll be most fully themselves. Sometimes you'll find that people describe themselves as a country person or a city person. I think I'm definitely more of a city person myself. And by this, they mean that they feel most comfortable in those places. It best fits their way of life. It best fits who they are in a way. When we become Christians, when we find ourselves redeemed, adopted, forgiven, and filled with God's spirit, then the place that we will feel most fully at home, most fully ourselves, will be in God's kingdom. We're not city people or country people, we're kingdom people in a way if we've believed the message about Jesus. And because of this, we will never feel fully at home or completely comfortable until God's kingdom has come. Somehow things won't quite fit until that time when heaven comes to earth, because God's kingdom is our true home, the hope that we're called to. But in the meantime, we can start to shape our lives in ways that fit with this kingdom to come We might begin to redecorate, for example, and maybe those around us will start to get glimpses of heaven and earth. So pray that by God's spirit, you would know the story. Verses 19 to 21, that you would know his incomparably great power for us who believe. That power is the same as the mighty strength he exerted when he raised Christ from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly realms far above all rule and authority, power and dominion, and every name that is invoked, not only in the present age, but in the age to come. Power implies strength. It's an ability to get something done. And power is linked with hope because it shows that God has the ability to bring all this about. He's already used this ability to raise Jesus from the dead and to give him authority over everything. And God has the ability to make us alive again in the age to come. And it's also an ability he gives us today to live in a new way. Paul will pray in chapter three, for example, that they would have the power, the ability to understand God's love for them. And this power, strength, and ability also comes through the Holy Spirit. So Paul doesn't need to despair when he's in prison because even in his weakness, God has the ability to bring about what he's promised. And his imprisonment actually makes it even more clear that it's God doing this and not Paul. Paul will write about this in 2 Corinthians 4. But we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that this all-surpassing power is from God and not from us. So even when we're at home sick, God's story hasn't stopped. If we don't have strength of our own, it doesn't matter because He does. And by his Holy Spirit, he'll give us the ability to live as he calls us to in whatever situation we find ourselves in so that his glory might be seen. Now, in verse 21, Paul notes that Jesus is seated above all rule, authority, power, and dominion. Why would this be important for the Ephesians to know? Because there were other powers at work in their world. Not only were they under the power and authority of Rome, but the spiritual world at that time would have been really uh, very real to them. In Ephesus, there were multiple gods that people would worship for different reasons. Artemis, for example, was a primary deity at this time. And gods were believed to control people's fates and the fates of nations as well. And if you come from this kind of background, it could be pretty easy to become a Christian, but also think that you need to pay attention to these other gods as well, or be afraid of the power they might have over you. But for Jesus to have all authority meant that these gods don't apply to them anymore. The Ephesians don't need to try to appease them. They're free. This is a big change from how they might have seen the world and their place in it. They were conquered people living in a land of many gods. But the small but growing church is told that God has authority over all this. Their story needs to change. Think that secular Canadian society is quite different from ancient Rome. We don't have the same pantheon of gods. But there's a spirituality under the secularism. People have a sense of something more. But today as well, Jesus reigns over any plans you think the universe has for you, or any power of fate you fear in your life, you aren't a victim of chance. Jesus is above nations and rulers, over power and dominion of any kind in our world. And he certainly has authority over the evil one and all of his work. Verse 22, And God placed all things under his feet and appointed him to be head over everything for the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills everything in every way. Jesus has the power to bring about this promised hope, and by his spirit he gives us the ability to live in light of it today. So looking back to the beginning where we started, we see Paul in his jail cell, chained to a Roman guard and writing this letter. And I'm sure he's smiling as he writes because he knows the story is true. Or me in my room with COVID feeling unproductive and alone, but I'm also part of a bigger story. And I can live in hope that God will bring about what he's promised and that he's working in my life today. Or us as a church, still waiting to get back in our new building and with all the various things that we're struggling with. God is still at work in our midst and we don't need to despair. We can pray that by God's spirit, we would know the story. What does Paul's prayer say to us today? What are we to take away from this? I would say it's an invitation to pray, to pray that we would experience God's spirit in our lives so that we would know God more And know the story we're called to. And not only that, that we would allow his spirit to shape us in preparation for our future home, to allow him to do some remodeling. My sister and I moved about a year and a half ago now, and I must have shredded hundreds of papers in preparation for this. And I sold a bunch of furniture online, things that weren't going to fit in the new apartment. And I also started to watch all these Netflix shows about home decoration and home organization to prepare my mind for the organized existence that I would have in my new place. As a church, we're awaiting the full coming of God's kingdom, a kingdom that's already partly in our midst. We are a temple where God dwells by his spirit. But we may need to work on getting rid of some things that won't fit in our new home, maybe some life priorities that we have. And this is something to pray for, to invite God's spirit to do. We really can't do it on our own. And we we might start to take on things that will fit well in our new home. One of my little sisters lives in Ottawa, and a few years ago, she really got into running triathlons. Now, living in snowy Ontario, she couldn't bike or swim in the winter. So she bought herself a stationary bike to use, and she got herself a gym membership to be able to swim throughout the year. And so although there was tons of snow outside and the time was not right for triathlons, her weeks were shaped by her discipline of training for what would happen once summer came. In the same way, we can learn to live in anticipation of what we're hoping for, to cultivate virtues that will shape us. Sometimes these are called spiritual practices. Paul will tell the Ephesians in chapter four that they're to live a life worthy of the calling they've received. And we too are to live today in light of our future hope, to live a life worthy of our calling. So pray that by God's spirit, you would know the story. Along with a prayer for God's spirit to be at work in our lives, we're also to pray for each other and to pray for our world, to pray in light of what God will do In the Lord's Prayer, Jesus tells his disciples to pray that God's will would be done on earth as it is in heaven, looking forward to the day when this will fully be the case. Our prayers matter. Why would Jesus ask us to pray if they didn't? We're called not only to live in light of God's kingdom, but to pray in light of it as well, to pray for governments, for nations, for leaders, to pray for our neighbors and our neighborhoods, to pray that things may be done today in our midst as if God's kingdom were already here, to pray his kingdom down to earth. So even when you get caught up in the monotony of daily life or find yourself in prison or at home sick, remember your hope. It matters the story you're telling yourself and pray that by God's spirit, you would be sure of this hope. May God himself enlighten the eyes of your heart. Now my hope for all of us um, throughout this sermon series the past few months is that it has caused us to pray and that we'll keep on praying about these things. Paul closes the whole book of Ephesians with another prayer, and I'll end this morning by reading it. Ephesians chapter six, verses 18 to 20. And pray in the spirit on all occasions with all kinds of prayers and requests With this in mind, be alert and keep on praying for all the Lord's people. Pray also for me that whenever I speak, words may be given to me, so that I will fearlessly make known the mystery of the gospel, for which I am an ambassador in chains. Pray that I may declare it fearlessly as I should. Amen. You've been listening to the First Baptist Church Sermon Podcast. For more sermons and information about our church's services and programs, please visit firstbc.org.